Hi, everyone, and welcome back to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Judd Littleton, and I'm a partner in the litigation group and co head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. As in the past couple of years, I'm here with Julia Malkina, who is also a partner in the litigation group and co head of our securities litigation practice. And this year, we are excited to welcome a third co host, Morgan Ratner, who joined SNC this past year and also helps head up our Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Today, we are kicking off our third season of podcasts, building off of SNC's Supreme Court Business Review, which we published last month. The Supreme Court Business Review summarizes the decisions from each term that are most relevant to business and offers practical guidance to business leaders on what they need to know about those decisions. You can find the Supreme Court Business Review and all of our podcast episodes once they're released on SNC's website at www.solcrom.com. Morgan, first of all, welcome. Do you want to kick us off by talking a little bit about today's episode? Thanks for the introduction, Judd, and I'm glad to be here. In this introductory episode, we'll talk a little bit about the Supreme Court Business Review and this podcast series more generally, and we'll preview our upcoming episodes. We'll conclude with a brief discussion of two interesting and closely watched administrative law decisions from this term. The first is National Federation of Independent Business, versus OSHA, in which the court considered whether OSHA had the authority to implement a national vaccine mandate. And the second is West Virginia versus EPA, in which the court considered whether the EPA had the authority to issue the Clean Power Plan, which established carbon dioxide emissions limits for power plants. We'll also briefly touch on the court's decision in American Hospital Association versus Becerra, which some court watchers expected to address the continued viability of the Chevron Doctrine. Throughout this episode and subsequent episodes, we'll discuss the practical consequences of the decisions covered in this term's Supreme Court Business Review and offer guidance for businesses and practitioners on these changes in the law. Thanks, Morgan. Julia, for those listeners who may be joining us for the first time, how about we start by talking about what the Supreme Court Business Review is? Of course, Judd, and thanks for the introduction. For the past eight years, SNC has published a review of the business-relevant cases at the conclusion of each Supreme Court term. Our goal is to make the Supreme Court Business Review accessible to practitioners and non-lawyers alike. The review provides concise, one-page summaries of the key cases from the most recent term in plain English and offers practical guidance on how they will affect businesses. We try to select cases with the most meaningful impact on our clients. Some of these cases get a little lost in the shuffle because the public tends to focus on the most controversial cases. For example, despite what you may have heard, we're here to tell you that you should really focus on VF Automotive. Stay tuned to learn what that case is about. And as our listeners know, the legal landscape for businesses is constantly changing. So we really try to make the Supreme Court Business Review a helpful and concise way for busy corporate executives, in-house counsel, and other legal practitioners to stay on top of important developments at the Supreme Court. The review also draws on the firm's premier Supreme Court and appellate practice, which in turn relies on the experiences of our diverse and talented attorneys including 17 former Supreme Court clerks and more than 80 former Federal Circuit Court clerks. 
That's right. And the three of us got a lot of help on this publication and these podcasts from a lot of different folks at SNC. We really enjoy serving as the editors, and it's especially fun for the three of us to do this together because we all clerked on the Supreme Court during the same term. I'm not going to say which term that was because it's starting to make me feel old, but Morgan and I were co-clerks for Chief Justice Roberts, and Julia clerked for Justices O'Connor and Breyer. And before that, Julia and I both clerked for then-Judge Kavanaugh when he was on the D.C. Circuit. And all three of us have also spent some time in the Solicitor General's Office at the Department of Justice, which is the component of the Department of Justice that represents the United States in the Supreme Court. You can find this year's edition of the Supreme Court Business Review, as well as all prior editions, under the Publications section of SNC's website. That's at www.solcrom.com. Our more recent launch is the podcast series, which debuted two years ago. We are excited to bring it to you again this year. Judd, do you want to talk about why we decided to record these podcasts? Of course. So first, I will confess that I really like podcasts, so I enjoy playing host. But more importantly, we thought that these podcasts would be a helpful and fun way to dig a little bit deeper into the key decisions and issues that are discussed in the Supreme Court Business Review. We work really hard in the review to boil down the takeaways of each decision into a one-page summary that you can digest in a couple of minutes. But in the podcast, we can get into a little more of the nuances of decisions and expand on their potential impact on businesses and practitioners. And these podcasts also allow us to invite other SNC partners with tremendous experience in the subject matter areas of these cases to share their insights. Of course, just like the review itself, we want these podcasts to be helpful and enjoyable for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. That's right. Each week, give or take, we will release a new episode focused on a different practice area and will invite other SNC partners who practice in that area to discuss last term's decisions that were most relevant in their space. Morgan, for those eagerly awaiting at home, can we give a preview of the upcoming episodes? Yes, we'll have lots of great content this year. It was a big year for arbitration, so we'll have some episodes on the important decisions in the arbitration space, covering things like ZF Automotive versus Luxshare, Viking River Cruises versus Moriana, Morgan versus Sundance, Badgerow versus Walters, and Southwest Airlines versus Saxon. We'll also focus on employment law, including in an episode discussing a variety of the court's recent decisions in the area. And also on deck is an episode on the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which will focus on the decision in Casarier versus Sison Berenimiza Collection Foundation that has a particularly interesting background. In this episode, however, we exercised our prerogative as hosts to keep for ourselves discussion of some very important administrative law decisions the court issued this term. We're interested both in the substance of these decisions, which were all important in their own right, as well as what they tell us about how the court will be reviewing administrative action going forward. So let's start with the court's decision in National Federation of Independent Business versus OSHA, a case that came to the court on its emergency docket and involves the unique context of the COVID-19 pandemic. The question here was whether OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, 
had the authority to direct every employer with 100 or more employees to require that all of those employees either receive a COVID-19 vaccine or alternatively take a COVID test every week and wear masks at work. Now, I'll note that the regulation was more commonly known in the public, if not entirely accurately, as the vaccine mandate, and we may adopt that shorthand here to keep things simple. Now, if that regulation had gone into effect, it would have required 84 million Americans to either get the vaccine or mask and test in order to go to work. Like most decisions, this one has narrow and broad implications. There's a narrow holding specific to OSHA, and then there's a broader rationale that has relevance for all federal agencies. Looking narrowly, the decision interpreted the federal statute that authorizes OSHA to issue, quote, mandatory occupational safety and health standards, end quote. OSHA argued that its vaccine mandate fell within its emergency authority to issue these kinds of safety standards because COVID-19 could be readily transmitted at work. But the court found that a COVID-19 vaccine mandate does not fall within OSHA's authority to regulate occupational safety, with a lot of italics on that word occupational. The court reasoned that COVID-19 doesn't qualify as an occupational hazard because it isn't specific to the workplace. It's a risk you face anywhere in the world where you interact with other people, and that happens to include when you're at work. By contrast, occupational hazards are things like the risk of being injured by factory equipment in an assembly line job. Although some workplaces like hospitals do have unique occupational hazards related to COVID-19, the vaccine mandate applied broadly to all workplaces. So according to the court, that made it look a lot less like it was targeting an occupational hazard and a lot more like it was aimed at a general public health issue. And I've been trying to think of what would qualify as an occupational hazard for appellate lawyers. I guess carpal tunnel from too much typing. That's about the best I could come up with. (laughs) In all seriousness, it seems like based on this decision, you know, we may see more litigation challenging the scope of OSHA's authority to regulate occupational hazards. New OSHA regulations that seem to be aimed at regulating universal risks rather than workplace-specific hazards will probably face greater scrutiny based on this case. But Morgan, let's get to the juicier stuff. You mentioned that the case is also relevant to a broader issue concerning federal agency authority. Can you talk about that broader issue? Yes, gladly. So the decision has real implications for the administrative state more generally, which, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, we already saw borne out later in the term. So the court strengthened a doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine. There are, or at least were at the start of the term, some competing versions of that doctrine. But essentially, it reflects an assumption by courts that Congress will not typically grant agencies wide-reaching regulatory powers. That is, it will not give them the authority to resolve major questions through vague statutory language or really tangential statutory provisions. As the court has sometimes more colorfully described it, Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. The courts have sometimes relied on that concept to reject agency interpretations that stretch the meaning of a statute's language in order to regulate a politically important issue, especially when it seems outside the agency's normal ambit. So, for example, in the foundational early case on the subject, 
the court struck down an attempt by the Food and Drug Administration to regulate the tobacco industry in ways that would have had a wide impact on that industry. All right. So how does the major questions doctrine factor into this case where OSHA is trying to require employees to get vaccinated? Sure, Judd. It was a critical part of the court's analysis. The court kicks off its opinion by observing that the vaccine mandate has vast economic and political significance. That's a quote. It then says, and and this really is the key move, that as a result, the court would require a clear statement from Congress to uphold such an important regulation. That reasoning is arguably different from some of those elephants in mouse holes cases where the court has applied the doctrine really after finding some ambiguity in the statutory language. But now the court seems to be saying the courts can consider the political and economic consequences of an agency regulation up front in deciding just how clear the statutory language needs to be. And that really elevates this from a, a general principle of statutory interpretation that's focused on trying to discern the plain meaning of a statute and turns it into a substantive clear statement rule that applies to a certain category of regulatory action. Thanks, Morgan. I entirely agree that although this may sound subtle, that change in how the court approached the major questions doctrine here matters, and it's likely to have a significant impact on future litigation challenging agency regulations. And in fact, as you noted, we saw that impact and arguably a further expansion of the doctrine in another case later this same term, which we're going to talk about next, and that is West Virginia versus EPA. Julia, would you like to explain that case for listeners? Absolutely, Judd. Like NFIB, West Virginia versus EPA is significant for its embrace of the major questions doctrine. The case concerned what some viewed as sweeping regulations across the energy sector that were implemented by the EPA under President Obama. In 2015, the EPA adopted the Clean Power Plan, or the CPP, to substantially reduce carbon pollution from coal-fired power plants. The CPP required those plants to either reduce their own energy production, build or invest in natural gas, wind, or solar energy facilities, or purchase emissions credits under a cap-and-trade program. The agency estimated at the time that the rule would have a dramatic effect on the coal industry as part of a broader effort to battle climate change. And so the question before the court in this case was whether Section 111 of the Clean Air Act gave EPA the authority to promulgate those regulations. So, Julia, what's the answer? The court held that the EPA did not have the authority to promulgate the CPP. In doing so, it stated, as it did in the OSHA case, that federal agencies may issue regulations with a, quote, major economic and political significance only if they can show clear authorization from Congress for such action. The court found no such clear congressional directive in the statutory provision the EPA relied on in its effort to significantly change the American energy sector through the CBP. So the decision, of course, has significant consequences for EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, but like the OSHA case, we expect it to have much broader significance due to how the court applied the major questions doctrine. Now, arguably, West Virginia takes that doctrine even a step further than OSHA did. 
Note that in this case, unlike where the FDA was regulating tobacco or OSHA was enacting public health regulations, it was pretty hard to argue that the EPA was straying outside of its lane. The EPA is charged with regulating air pollution, and here it was trying to substantially reduce carbon emissions from power plants, even if through pretty severe means. Yet the court still essentially held that Congress would have had to be exceptionally clear in its statutory language to authorize the EPA to engage in such an economically and politically significant action. As the court summed it up in the opinion by the Chief Justice, in certain extraordinary cases, both separation of powers principles and a practical understanding of legislative intent make us reluctant to read into ambiguous statutory text the delegation claimed to be lurking there. To convince us otherwise, something more than a merely plausible textual basis for the agency action is necessary. The agency instead must point to clear congressional authorization for the power it claims. So moving forward, we are likely to see parties challenging significant assertions of federal regulatory power rely on the major questions doctrine to argue that clear congressional authorization of agency actions that have substantial political or economic significance was required. Essentially, West Virginia gives litigants a stronger foothold in court anytime regulators attempt to rule make outside their traditional areas of subject matter competency or try to address issues in new sectors of the economy or otherwise take a step that parties can show will have a significant economic impact on wide swaths of American businesses or people. Going forward, it seems particularly likely that courts will apply this doctrine where an agency hasn't previously invoked the authority that's claiming, or if the regulatory activity is extremely impactful or politically salient. Morgan, based on West Virginia and NFIB, do you think we'll see an increase in litigation challenging broad agency action in other regulated areas, such as capital market regulation, FTC oversight, and antitrust? Without question. I think that litigants are going to be raising this argument in virtually every challenge to major regulatory action. And the question is just how often are courts going to be convinced? My guess is that these arguments will still be rejected far more often than they're accepted. But where they're most likely to have traction is where the agency's action raises several of the red flags that Justice Gorsuch helpfully laid out in his concurrence in West Virginia. So a couple worth noting. One is when an agency tries to read a significant authority into what feels like a minor provision. Another is when the statute has been around for a long time and the agency has just newly discovered a significant power lurking unused for decades. And a final one we've already mentioned is that sometimes there seems to be a mismatch between the agency's mission and expertise and the type of regulation that it's trying to do. But I suppose that's enough about major questions for the moment. I'm sure we could all talk about this all day. Um, should we briefly touch on a third case American Hospital Association versus Becerra, which may tell us something about how the current Supreme Court is thinking about the Chevron doctrine? Sure. And as a reminder for folks who don't spend their free time thinking about administrative law like we do, 
The longstanding Chevron doctrine directs courts assessing the legality of federal agency action to do that in two steps. First, determine whether the statute that supposedly authorizes the agency's action is ambiguous. Next, if the statute is ambiguous, decide whether the agency's interpretation of the statute is reasonable. That doctrine has been around for almost 40 years now, but it's been criticized by some people, including some current justices, as giving agencies too much power. Now, before we get to how that framework applied here, Morgan, what do we need to know about the specific background of Becerra? Not too much, luckily. The Medicare statute is notoriously a bit difficult to parse. Um, But here, just at a high level of generality, the court was considering whether the Department of Health and Human Services was permitted to set different Medicare reimbursement rates for different groups of hospitals. The statute provided HHS with two options. First, survey hospital costs and then impose a varying rate based on those costs. Or second, impose a flat rate on all hospitals based on drug prices. In 2018 and 2019, HHS chose to vary rates, but it didn't conduct the survey required by option one before it did so. And so the Supreme Court held that the 2018 and 2019 reimbursement rates were unlawful. And in doing that, it rejected HHS's argument that the agency could vary rates among hospital groups under the second statutory option, by relying on its authority to, quote, adjust reimbursement rates. So again, Morgan, to get to the juicy stuff, where does Chevron come in? Well, here, Judd, it was the court's silence that really spoke volumes. Some commentators have predicted the court might use this case to overrule or narrow Chevron. Chevron was discussed in the party brief and really extensively in the amicus brief, and it, it even came up during oral argument. But the court's opinion does not even mention Chevron. Simply interpreted the statute and held that the agency's action wasn't authorized without asking whether the statute was ambiguous. The upshot is that although the court didn't do anything to formally narrow Chevron, this decision is emblematic of a trend. It's a narrowing of Chevron in practice. If the court sees fewer ambiguities in statutes, it won't need to consider whether it should defer to an agency's interpretation at all. What are some of the practical implications of this, Julia? Litigants would be well advised to argue first and most prominently that the authorizing statute is not ambiguous and therefore that the court need not move to Chevron step two just because a lawyer could come up with some argument for ambiguity. When all is said and done, like the strengthening of the major questions doctrine, the minimization of Chevron could spell trouble for more ambitious agency interpretation of statutes. Chevron may maintain some strength in some lower courts, but it seems likely that, assuming Chevron is not outright narrowed or overruled, it may play a more minor role in the Supreme Court moving forward. Now that's all we have for today. Thank you all for listening to SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Please also join Judd, Morgan, me, and our guests for upcoming episodes of our Supreme Court Business Review podcast series.